you know, in that room with the gunman, I had this moment of feeling sort of very hopeless, as if here I am about to die and I've done nothing, nothing that's been really joyful, nothing which has been really kind, nothing which has been full of love, nothing which has actually made any difference other than that I know a lot of facts in my head. I've looked at a lot of spreadsheets and I haven't really fully come alive and I'm about to die. You know, it was just this moment of kind of, no, please, no. I just, I really don't want it to end before I've got a chance to actually get on with what I'm supposed to do. And then I had a very strange experience afterwards of this powerful feeling of compassion towards my hostage taker and the whole circumstance and it made me realize that the capacity for kindness is huge. Welcome to Self-Centred, where I look to give you the tools, tactics and above all confidence to show up as an authentic, purpose-driven version of yourself each day. Now each episode I interview people who are living out their passions and I'm delighted to be speaking to Emma Slade today. Emma is a Buddhist nun from Kent, here in the UK, and also unlike most other nuns, she has a child and she's had an amazing and unique route to purpose. A fine art student turned successful financial analyst, she managed billion dollar accounts and travelled the world for global banks. The turning point for her came at gunpoint where she was held hostage in a hotel room in Jakarta. She says at that point her whole life flashed before her eyes and all she could think about was how little she felt she'd achieved, how unfulfilled she felt and how much more she felt she had to do with her life. And that realisation has spurred massive life changes given her renewed purpose and action. She's taken her vow, she's entrepreneurial, she's set up and run her own charity, written a popular book and TED talk. And I think it's that unique context that she can give us as someone who's had a corporate career and come out the other side to do something that really fulfills her personally. We talk about the fact that it doesn't have to be huge life-changing events like hers that move you towards fulfillment. She talks about identifying and carving out a bit more time to do things that make you happy each day, gardening, playing with kids, practical advice we can all begin to implement as we spend more and more of our lives at home. Now I have to say I found it an interesting dichotomy actually between Emma the mother from Southeast England and Emma the nun. At one point she talks about learning the art of patience from parenting much more than you could ever do through Buddhist teaching. And yet she's also found it necessary to dedicate her whole life to Buddhist practice. I started as ever by asking Emma exactly what purpose means to her. I think without purpose, one doesn't arise from sleep with a feeling of joy and a wish to grasp the day or seize the day, as that phrase goes. I think some sense of clarity about what you want to do with the time that you have that's what purpose is. And then putting it into action, that's what brings the fulfillment, the sense of living with integrity that means you, you can sleep comfortably at night. Your story is very, very unique and very close to my heart, uh, if I'm totally honest. Um, I feel like the older I get, the more drawn towards Eastern uh, I won't call it religion, Eastern philosophy, I get. I do have Herod, my, my father's a Hindu. You are c clearly someone like me who's been born and brought up in, in the West, in the UK. And in terms of purpose and what you've just said, would you, would you clarify that for us? It, it, the purpose, and you mentioned having integrity and, and you know, every day doing something that makes you feel that you're, you, you, know, you have integrity and you're clear mm -hmm. in that. Was that not the case before in your life, before you found your calling, your, your path as a Buddhist nun? Was that not the case then? And if it wasn't, how have things changed now? Oh, you know, there's many things I could say to that apparently simple question. Uh, from a personal level, when I look back, 
you're right, of course, because when we're involved in, in things and we're doing things and getting things done, we feel very purposeful. When I look back though now at my days as a you know, high-flying financial analyst, very, very important, let's get it done. From my perspective now, it feels as if I was running around trying to sort out the confusion. There just wasn't much clarity. I wanted to be very active. I wanted to be meaningful. I had a lot of energy. I wanted to feel like I was doing something in the world and I wasn't wasting my time. But actually, from my perspective now, it looks a little bit more like running around in quite a confused state. What I lacked was a clear path and a clear guide. And in having my teacher in Bhutan and having all the uh, Buddhist studies and meditations that I do, I feel what I have now is a path and a guide. And with that, the energy that I had before, uh, the wish to be involved and um, make something meaningful of my life, then it, it became much clearer. Whereas before, it was a little bit like, a, you know, when you have a young child and they're just full of energy and they just keep kind of bashing things because they, you know, they've got all this energy and they want it to be, make a difference, but they don't really know what they're doing with themselves. It's a bit more like that. A lot of people might be listening to this and I'm always conscious of, of actionable stuff that the audience can take. And I, I'm mm. conscious of the fact that you and I are very interested in Buddhism, you much more so than me. Uh, and you've, you've obviously studied it and you have a guide and, and you're a nun and you've committed your, yourself to it. Mm. But what for, the, for people listening who are in the situation you were in, to all intents and purposes, a success story, traveling the world, um, you know, doing big, big deals, big trades, mm. um, being a corporate success. Mm. And, and you've got that ability to look back on that with context. And you say, actually, I was a bit like a toddler running around, <laughs> smashing things like a whack-a-mole almost. Um, <laughs> people, might have, people might have that kind of feeling within that there's something of that nature going on. But as you've said, it takes context to really make that concrete. What, what can you say with that context to people, the millions of people who are in that situation and maybe have a niggle? Okay, so even in that circumstance, obviously that out of those circumstances came the situation that I'm in now. All right? I don't know if I would have been in this situation now without having experienced that. So first of all, you know, <laughs> it's not all hopeless. And from a, from a Buddhist point of view, the capacity to be a peaceful person and a kind person is always there. You may not see it, but it's always there. And all it would take is somebody to, one of those people running around like toddlers. Never sounds a bit rude, but it is fairly accurate. <laughs> uh, even in a toddler, you might see them suddenly decide to give their friend a lollipop, right? Something they're very kind, out of nowhere. You didn't even tell them to share, you know, share. George, share, you know, be nice, be kind hands. You know, you said it like a million times and then suddenly, you know, they look such kindness on their friend or a butterfly in the garden or whatever and there's instinctive kindness is there. Or suddenly there is a moment of complete, peacefulness where they're absorbed in something and it looks like a miracle to the parent it looks like a miracle oh my goodness for one minute he's silent or peaceful or he was automatically kind so even in the midst of this confusion the capacity to be peaceful even for one second or kind even for one moment is there and if you look at your own life and you think actually yeah I was in the garden the other day. I was peaceful for a moment. Or my neighbor asked me for some help, and I did make the time to help them. And so first of all, even though they may be just very small little seeds or very, very little shoots coming out from the ground, look clearly at your life and look for those, very, even if they seem very small moments or surprising moments or unchosen moments, they will be there. And then all that is required is to begin to cultivate those more 
clearly and deliberately so that a second of kindness becomes five minutes, becomes half an hour, becomes, actually, I'm going to do this now. And a moment of peacefulness becomes, oh, I really like being peaceful, actually. It, it really helps me. And I come out of it a, a clearer kind of person. So if it's being in the garden for one minute that makes me peaceful, maybe I'll, I'll give myself half an hour in the garden now. Or if it's um, looking after some animal, actually maybe I'll do a little bit more because I see that the results of it are I'm a peaceful, more peaceful person. And that is within me. It's not just the confusion. So like that. I think that's really useful, especially at the moment. Um, people have got more time at home. Um, people are maybe because they don't have to uh, get involved in the commute automatically gaining hours back in their day mm -hmm. and actually i guess there's a point where even if you're working from home um there's a point where people say okay i may have two hours back from my commute but i'm going to spend that working mm -hmm. because i feel guilty there's a guilt element we're all working together we're guilt, all... guilt for what guilt for what well, this is the, qu the question. The guilt that I'm in the garden when I should be sat at my computer doing the extra hours. I guess the point there is that that put-upon feeling of guilt is actually holding you back from two things, two main things, a lot of things, but two main things. One is doing the things that you suggest, so identifying what it is that brings me closer to happiness and doing more of that. And the second thing, which is counterintuitive, I guess, when you've got that set put upon guilt, is I am more effective in my day-to-day -day work if I take that time out because I'm, I am nourishing myself. I am spending time doing things that build me up, therefore I can give more. So that kind of guilt, you, you pick me up on that. Can we... That you know, I don't get that. I don't yeah, get the logic of your argument that. there. Yeah, so what, okay, so let's just look at this, right? So you've told me that people previously had to sit in, what, a train or something for two hours, right? And now they don't have to do it. But now that two hours has turned into something that generates guilt in their mind. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying that they've got two hours back in their day that they didn't have. And I'm saying that I would use that to do what you're suggesting. I would find the thing that makes me happy, whether it's gardening, walking, being in nature, riding my bike, whatever it is, and I would Im insert that into my day, maybe at 11 o'clock, maybe at three o'clock, those periods where we, we naturally start to feel a bit tired. Um, I would insert those times for me to become closer to things that I, that I know nourish me and build mm, me up. Okay. What I actually think happens is people mm. just work longer in this okay. being at home. Yeah, okay. Um, and they, well, if they are doing that, they've probably realized by now it may not be super successful. So they may have hit a brick wall with that, a bit like on a marathon at whatever it is, 17 miles or something. Because you probably can do that for a while, to be honest. Um, but around now, people probably are realizing, uh-oh, you know, that's not actually going that great, actually. As a human, what I would say is, for my own small experience is that finding the right pace for you, finding the right balance between being very energetic and resting, I've been doing, doing and being, finding the right pacing for that, that, that goes well for you and brings out the best in you. What I'm hearing is that people have a greater opportunity to find that at this time because you said they had two hours back. So presumably they have this the amount of work they have to do, but what you're telling me is they have a longer period of time in which to achieve it. That means that they have greater opportunity to find the right pace and way for them. Maybe if they make that a clearer objective to find that out, then that maybe is a good approach, I think. Interesting. Do you think that the, and you were in finance, <laughs> not shy of working every hour God sends, I'm sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you, as someone who's had 
a big change in life and you looking back and I, I'm really fascinated with this ability that you have, which I think is pretty unique to look back at the way most of us in the West live with different eyes. And that's why I'm kind of like a dog with a bone. And I really want to mine that within you and really get your perspective. Do you feel that that drive to work all hours and that, that, that feeling that we, and, and you know, someone the other day was talking to me about their brother who um, works in the city and during being furloughed had realized that he'd spending time with his kids who are now teenagers and he'd missed Mm. They're, they're growing up which breaks my heart and I think is, is, is family is crucial to human development uh, and, and, and human potential and being close to family but this, this drive that we have to work mm. and, and sometimes at the expense often at the expense of what's good for us as human beings with your eyes now with your perspective mm. now and as someone who did that where does that come from where, where, why, why have we got that drive even if it's not the best for us and our families why do we do it oh gosh I mean I don't know and I think that's going to be different for different people depending on their psychological makeup and their previous um, experience so I can only talk personally on this um, on this point so for me personally my drive because if you recall my uh, uh, career as a financial analyst was came not long after the death of my father and I was very driven to stand on my own two feet and kind of make his him proud of me in a sense, you know. And um, I was quite driven by being a female in a more male-dominated industry and kind of showing them, I don't know, something. I don't know what, but something. So I had those things... Um, going on in me I think something to prove I don't know to myself or others I wanted to prove something and that had very much come out of the pain and grief of, of losing my father so that's the psychological makeup I think that was driving me and that won't be the same you know for everybody um, I felt personally very comfortable being at work and I hadn't really developed other parts of me to feel so comfortable doing other things I just didn't that comfortable being super sociable I didn't really have a huge amount of hobbies work was where I felt most comfortable so when I look back I see kind of quite a one-sided person not a fully three-dimensionally developed person from the perspective that I see now and I'm just so pleased that various events came along that forced me to fully develop more sides of myself rather than just the work being i'm just grateful that happens really let's talk about that because you had a major intervention and for people who don't know you you were kidnapped um and this is not the kind of personal intervention that you'd wish on anyone albeit as, as i'm as i've read you you've said so much good has come out of it for you mm. so much learning um the most people aren't going to have an intervention like that in their life. Mm, mm, yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. It's not like a <laughs> workshop I'm going to start <laughs> putting out there. Mindfulness plus being taken hostage, the benefits thereof. Yeah. <laughs> Stockholm Syndrome 101. Um, I, I think, so most people aren't going to have that intervention, mm. but I'd love to hear what that gave you, what you've learned about happiness from such a tra uh, an absolutely traumatizing experience what your ptsd has taught you as well linked to that i just love to hear from the context of you just talking about someone who was one dimensional to mm. now being someone who is rounded mm. with that tragic uh, sorry the, uh, the the traumatic event in mm. the middle just talk talk to us about the effects on you yeah i guess um you know being held hostage had two pivotal moments for me and the first one comes back to this idea of purpose because um, you know in that room with the gunman I had this moment of feeling sort of very hopeless as if okay, here I am about to die and I've done nothing nothing that's been really joyful nothing which is been really kind, nothing which has been full of love, nothing which has actually made any difference 
other than that I know a lot of facts in my head, I've looked at a lot of spreadsheets, and I haven't really fully come alive, and I'm about to die. You know, it was just this moment of kind of, no, please, no. I just, I really don't want it to end before I've got a chance to actually get on with what I'm supposed to do. So that was the first moment. And then I had a very strange experience afterwards of this kind of very powerful feeling of compassion towards my hostage taker and the whole circumstance. It was a very strange experience and it made me realize that the capacity for kindness is huge and way beyond what I'd ever imagined was possible and certainly what I'd ever imagined was possible for me because I didn't think I was a particularly kind person. I was very analytical and uh, probably thought kindness was a bit of a weak waste of time, to be frank. So those two moments related to that incident had a, a big, big impact on me. And they're really the, 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 the seeds of what I've gone on to develop, I hope. In terms of the PTSD, obviously um, PTSD, not an enjoyable experience. It's a bit like having mental reflux uh, to the power of 100. And so I guess that recovering from the trauma, but then the memories of the trauma actually took in a way longer to recover from. The PTSD went on for a long time compared to the length of the incident, which is kind of weird, right? I think um, it showed me the power of the mind, you know, how your mind can be your, your worst companion if if there are things in it which are not working well or if it is suffering from trauma. It, it doesn't matter whether you're sitting on a beach with a rainbow. If you're suffering from PTSD, the world will be like a living a traumatic hell for you. So it showed me the power of the mind in a in a very a clear way and it also um, allowed me to realize that I wasn't going to be a victim that I had to liberate myself from the circumstance I found myself in what do I mean by that I mean that certain people helped me after the incident professionals helped me um, but ultimately, at some point, I had to decide to completely recover. And I kind of had to take that recovery into my own hands. And that's when I started doing a lot of yoga. I did a lot of breathing work. And I began to look more at meditation and the nature of the mind. And that's something that very much I had to end up driving. So I felt that whilst a lot of people in the first instance supported me in the initial stages of recovery, and I couldn't have helped myself at that point, I couldn't have done it without help. But to finish the job, I kind of had to start driving it. And so I also learned, learned that. Are you happier now than you were before? I know that sounds like a trite question, but <laughs> I wonder whether having, you went through a, an incredibly traumatic experience, you suffered with PTSD, you obviously didn't have any of those issues before you were held hostage, mm. which is why I'm asking the question. Mm. Oh, yeah, no, because, I mean, my whole definition of the word happiness can be different now. But, um, yes, I feel, I don't know if happiness is, is the right word, really, but I feel very fulfilled. I feel very clear I'm on the right path, which comes back to that moment in the room where I suddenly realized how unfulfilled I actually felt and how much I didn't feel I had found the right path. And I think particularly with the charity that I've founded and the children that it's helped, that brings me a lot of a lot of joy and I think makes me feel that my wish to develop a little bit of my own kindness a bit further has, has also come true. Uh, so I feel fulfilled. Happiness is a strange word. So I think fulfilled and peaceful. And I have a clarity of mind now uh, that I didn't have before. But only very early days, you know, that's the main quality that we develop within meditation is the, to see the clarity of the mind. You, maybe if you come back in 10 years, we can see if I've got any further along that particular path. What you're talking about is an epiphany moment where some people have them through different means. Mm. You had it through a very mm. traumatic way. Mm. 
are, looking back, mm. if you were to talk to your, you know, pre um, hostage self, what, mm. are, are, it, were there any other ways that Emma Slade would have mm. reached this point? No. No, I think very unlikely. Certainly not as fast as I did. It may have taken a lot, lot longer. I mean, mine was like a microwave experience as opposed to one of those slow cookers you can put on the oven. So I definitely had the microwave experience. So, uh, so no, I'd, I, don't, I don't think so. And what would you say to people who are inspired by what you're saying and they, they resonate, what you're saying resonates with them. You know, they, they feel like you said earlier, you know, I looked at my life and I thought, is, is this all I've done? You know, I've got so much more mm. to give. And you had that mm. acute concentrated mm. moment. Mm. There are people listening who know, will, will hear that and think, I feel the same. Mm. What, but I don't want to be <laughs> held hostage to get there. Yeah, 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 what's, your yeah. advice, what's your advice to them? Uh, give yourself quiet time. Just sit and reflect. In whatever way they come to you, that sentence, whatever it is, if it's um, wish to be more fulfilled or uh, wish to give more to my life, whatever the sentence is that comes to you. I mean, I had these particular feelings and words that came to me in that hostage situation. Whatever the precise sentence is that that comes to you, reflect on it quietly by yourself. Keep a pad of paper and pen by your hand and just see what comes up. When you just let that feeling just be there, you just kind of allow it to, to, to show you the next step. Something will come. Be quiet and sit with those uh, wishes, those thoughts. Something will come. I think that's so valuable. Um, I talk about five to thrive and, you know, five things you can do every day to, you know, to, to have a, a more fulfilled life. And number one is, is, is sitting with the self. And I think that sometimes people, they, their eyes can glaze over a bit when you start talking about that. Um, they think of it as maybe a religious pursuit or something a bit, you know, airy fairy or indulgent, even if we go back to our conversation earlier about this interesting time where people are at home more and maybe have more time and actually wouldn't it be a great time? Suddenly you've got, you've got your commute back that you could spend time with the self and just listening and, and in non-action, you know, which was, we're so driven by action and achievement. Wouldn't it be a wonderful time to do that? Um, I would say, I, I, I don't want to interrupt. No, please. Be relaxed but have a feeling of urgency. In the room, I felt I had two seconds left, maybe one second left. It really mattered that I, I felt this so acutely that I had not found the thing that I wanted to do that I, and that time was just about to end, right? So when you sit down, you don't have to do it often. You know, maybe once will be enough, but sit down with the integrity of saying, I want to know. This is not just a little peaceful little sitting thing I'm gonna do. I have this need in me, this burning need in me to find more what's gonna fulfill me. What is my, uh, what do I want to do with my time? Sit down as if time is running out. Relaxed, but you need the answers now. You talked earlier about your kind of route to fulfillment is through kindness and mm -hmm. compassion. Mm -hmm. um, Again, which may sound kind of not alien, but sort of a, a sentiment that people have never maybe associated with finding fulfillment. We've associated other things like being mm. clever or being. Mm. Yeah, very much. Mm. Are they the only routes to true fulfillment for you? No, no, of course not. In fact, we need all these qualities. I mean, I've chosen to concentrate on passion or I kind of chose me I don't know after Jakarta I mean it was the last thing I thought I was ever going to do the idea of being kind is slightly abhorrent to me I mean I was definitely Mrs. Academic right I mean let's let's cut and let's cut and know them more and let's be the smartest person in the room kindness you've got to be joking so really I really understand what you're saying there this is much a surprise to me as anyone else <laughs> that I decided to cultivate this quality but these qualities are not in 
independent. So for instance, it's okay if I want to be kind, but it's taken my energy, my intelligence to found a charity. I've had to work with other people on that, not just me, right? You know, I've relied on the help of a lot of other people. I've had to talk to engineers about a mixture of cement for a playground. Uh, I, you know, exactly what kind of prosthetic leg some child needs. I've gone and looked at how the knee joint works. I mean, it's not just kindness. Kindness on its own is nice, but it does need to be combined with energy, patience, intelligence, the capacity to work with others, to, to, uh, to not give up when it gets difficult. Many, many qualities. Then kindness comes to fruition. But without those other supports, actually, it could kind of fizzle out into just a bit of a wet Sunday afternoon, isn't it? Mm. Now I've forgotten your original question. No, you've answered it. <laughs> it, was, um, it, it was about, it was, a, it was exactly that. It's, it's, I think that when we talk about compassion and kindness as being cornerstones of a lot of Eastern belief systems, um, you know, it, it, it may be something that people don't associate with fulfilling themselves professionally as well as personally. It might be seen as a spiritual endeavor, but actually it can be very practical because from your kindness and your compassion, who knew you had it, as you mm. say, um, <laughs> you know, you were, you were a go-getting financial analyst. Mm. You found through, through this, mm. this, this incident, you found compassion and your kindness, which is, I believe, in all of us. Yeah. Um, and But through that, you have created endeavors. And I think that's what's mm. really interesting is you've combined, that's been your, your passion, which I believe is fuel for purpose. It, it's what mm. fuels your purpose. And, um, and, you, and you've created things and you've, and you've, as you say, you've dug playgrounds and you've uh, found prosthetic legs and limbs. And, you know, that is a very interesting way for us to coin fulfillment, isn't it? Because the, the, the kind of, if you think about our, our schooling system over here in the UK, you are driven to pass exams, to be the cleverest, the fastest, the, the you know, the, 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 the highest achieving, the best speaker. But actually that stuff, if that stuff comes first, it, it, it doesn't fulfill. It's the, it's the feeling and the, the drive and the passion, in, in your case, the kindness and compassion that you've cultivated. That comes first, and then the skills that you've cultivated and that you have innately and that you've developed, they work on top, and they bring that out. Yeah, but I'll be forever grateful for the schooling I had, the academic success I had, and the, what I learned in the city in terms of getting things done, managing projects, analyzing situations, having the confidence to go into a meeting with some school governors and ask the really difficult questions because when you're running a charity, you know, certainly in the way that I run it, I want to know how every penny is spent. And, you know, I've had to be surprisingly tough at making sure I know what's going on. Okay, we're going to give you a a water filtering system but if you don't change those filters every six months then it's all going to go wrong so you know you have to go into the, the you know you you have to be able to combine kindness the open-eyed and very pragmatic way of, of being in the world to ensure that your kindness doesn't backfire or lead to some unskillful action so i'm not uh, I, you know, you, you, you talked about the looking back at where I started. I'm very grateful for the, the drive and the intelligence and the academic stuff that I had. It's led me to, to now. Um, so I don't see it so much as a kindness versus other things. I think, I think it's a gathering of talents that fully come to fruition. If I hadn't had that um, wish to analyze and, and, and you know, pass exam or whatever it was, actually would have served me less well now in my attempt to run a charity, to be honest. So I just see it as a gathering of skills at different times. And then the question is, are, are they coming to fruition? And I think they're more coming to fruition now. Um, so I, I see it, I see, I see it more like that, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are lots of things about the academic system which need some 
greater humanity and some speaking. But I'm just talking personally how I view things from my own life. I love your your journey because it does all feel like it's come together. You know, you, mm-hmm. you cultivated these skills, as you put it, and I would say that a lot of us have have done the same. We've cultivated skills. We have ridden the train that we're supposed to ride into uh, jobs and work and commuting, etc. We get to a point where we feel that um, you know maybe there's more and that we can do more. But not everyone acts on that. And I think what you're talking about, I think the reason that compassion is so important from what you're saying and kindness for you is that it's almost the fuel that allows you to, to drives you to, to use your skills in this way to help others. Um, I want to talk a little bit about charity because um, I've worked a little bit on um, with developing nations and on big social problems in developing developing nations things like water and sanitation issues Mm. um you know sexual health for for girls you know and i've been to developing nations and i'm by by no means an expert but i've worked with experts and people who work with ngos as someone who is very much on the ground Mm. and someone who's coming from a place of pure kindness and compassion you haven't got an agenda (laughs) no no i don't get a salary no one pays me anything (laughs) I, you know, I pay all my own way, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm as agenderless as you can be, apart from being quite stubborn. <laughs> well, <you're laughs> when gonna, I set my mind to something. <laughs> well, you're exactly the right person to ask this question to because I, I'm going to get warts and all with you here. Okay. I'm going to be very honest. And I want, I'd love to know your personal view on this as someone who is okay. around mm. without an agenda. I must admit to you that I get very, uh, I, I think the word the kind word is frustrated the truth is probably anger and it's not a it's not a emotion that that leads to anything good but i get i get that emotion because when i go to these places and i was in africa last year and asia and i see the suffering the open sewers the girls you know having to do back backdoor abortions at the age of 16 because they're selling having to sell their bodies en masse you know just to get the food to eat um, just to get the money for food to eat. When I see that mm. in developing nations, my anger is 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 at the is at the system that allows it to to carry on. Because we're talking about the vast majority of these countries, mm. people are mm. suffering, and I've seen it with my my two eyes, and you have as well. Mm. Um, when we try and help, mm. we are treating the symptoms, not the mm. cause. Do you ever share my frustration with that? And ha- has has that thinking ever occurred to you? And if it has, <laughs> what's the best way to approach that? Because it's a very, very difficult problem. Apart from overthrowing governments, which doesn't work, I can't see a solution and to tackle the actual root cause of the systemic problems that, that we witness and we see the human effects of. Have you had any thoughts on that? Okay, a couple of things is a good question, a very real question. A couple of things. First of all, I I was inspired by one a girl with cerebral palsy in southern Bhutan. She really was the person who inspired me to take action. So a set of circumstances came together. Uh, you know, I've done a lot of compassion practice, etc. But I haven't thought about taking the action. And then I met her, and from that. I felt compelled to act. I felt as if I'd found a little part of the world which I felt absolutely committed to do something about. I didn't feel I wanted to tackle India or Africa or climate change or whatever. I just found a small, small particular part of the world that I felt this I'm going to do something about. And I do feel on some level to get away from the kind of big issues that you've described, the best thing is to to find one small area of the world which you feel very driven and not comfortable exactly. You don't feel confused about helping with in the way that you've described. And do that, whatever it is, animals, the environment, this country, that country, 
just near your home, a little bit away from your home, old people, young people, I don't know what it is. All I hope is that everybody finds the little, the little area that they want and they feel very strongly they want to play their part. And this then, then there's your second question was an interesting one because I think it often comes up. And I actually spoke to my one of my teachers in Bhutan about it because I had one person ask me about, they wanted to give some charity donation, not to us, to, in some other part of the world. And they were already worried that the money would be used inappropriately. And so I sought the advice of one of my teachers in Bhutan. So there, the, the mind of the person was already chewing on quite negative things. They were going to feel resentful. They were going to feel like they didn't really trust what was going on. And I didn't know what he was going to say, whether he would say, no, you know, give the money anyway, because it's better to help than not, etc. And he said, if your mind is already consumed with those negative thoughts, no point in acting because it's already so tainted. So if you're in a situation where the anger you're feeling, the frustrating frustration you're feeling is already so great, then that's probably not the best place for you to act. So look elsewhere. Hopefully there will be somebody else who doesn't have those uh, responses to the situation. So from a pure from a pure Buddhist point of view, we're always going to look at the mind that is in that situation and when you describe a mind which is anger and frustration combined with the wish to do compassion then something's not okay there so might might be want to skillfully find another place i love that um <laughs> and it's very personal and it touches deep because on one hand, there's a sense of trying to fix the world because I mm. care. Mm. On the other hand, when you bring it back to your Buddhist um, your Buddhist teachings and mm. learnings, this is where I've got to naturally personally. And this is my biggest bit from my journey. The biggest learning I can give to anyone is what you talked about earlier. If you spend more time getting to know your true self and having the space in your life to do that and it like you say it doesn't have to be a big deal hmm. you can then change from within and, hmm. and you can and and it's not about we've seen before haven't we and off air we were talking about industrialization a little bit which basically to me just means getting lots of people to, to do similar things whether it's industrialization of work industrialization of belief systems in the form of organized religion um that that conformity takes away from a lot of the things which i'm learning from you and i've learned from reading up about eastern philosophy which is about the self and taking responsibility yourself and one by one we change and then the group changes rather than the other way around which is what we've seen where we try and have re revolution or we try and have, you know, a new politician comes in and promises change. They all do it every four or five years. That doesn't work. It has to start and it has to be about you and it has to be your personal journey and your personal being the change you want to see. And I think your point to me just then really hit home because What I really believe in and what I really want to see is, a, is, a, is an internal, a personal innovation, if you like, a personal change. And then the others might, might see that and have their own individual change. And that's why earlier I asked you about, you know, is kindness the only path to fulfillment? Well, you said it isn't and and that's again that's very interesting because it's admirable for me to want to make change and it's admirable for me to want to go in and see all this suffering and get very angry and mm. try and overthrow the government mm. but it's not my response to that shows that it's it's not a journey that i'm i should be taking it's not where i can put 
my drive and my purpose most effectively? At this point, it's possible that as you grow and change, that you may be able to revisit those conditions with a more stable mind and something may occur that you think, ah, oh, now I see how to help here. Before, all this caused me was anger. I couldn't see a way forward. It may be that then as you develop later, you could revisit similar conditions and have greater insight. Well, thank you for that. Um, it means a lot. I want to wrap up by asking you about something we've both got in common. <laughs> we are both parents. Yes. And this is something I don't know how prevalent it is with Buddhist nuns to have mm. children, but I would, I would probably guess that it's not that common. Mm. Um, for you taking the, the vow of celibacy, admitting mm. your life so wholeheartedly to, to the Buddhist way and the eightfold mm. path, how has that worked with being a mum? Yeah, okay. So first of all, just to say that obviously uh, first was my son. Yeah. <laughs> and then later. You didn't slip. None. You didn't slip, okay. no. no. Yeah. Uh, there are, in the Himalayas where I train, there are definitely uh, practitioners who have had children first and become dedicated practitioners later. And there certainly are a lot of male practitioners who have children uh I think it's more unusual for a female to combine the roles, but that may be because men have a female at home that does those other things. Um, so just to clarify a few points there, to combine the experience of being a parent and, you know, single parent largely, oh, it's quite a big job. And to combine that with very dedicated practice is also quite a big job. So I seem to have a few quite big jobs. Uh, and for me, our parenthood, I would say, is a very big test. You know, in Buddhist practice, we talk about peacefulness, concentration, patience, etc. Well, if you want to really be tested in those qualities, <laughs> the best thing to do is to have a child. And I can remember there was one point with my Lama. Uh, I said, Lama, you know, because obviously Lama is, hasn't had any children. And, you know, obviously I spend a lot of time with monks and nuns who haven't had any children. And I said to him, Lama, how have you learned patience? Because to a certain extent to me, if you haven't had a child, I don't know that you ever really learned patience. And he said something about oh, sitting for long periods of time doing in practice in the, in the monastery and I thought yeah okay I'm not, quite <laughs> not convinced <laughs> not quite convinced you know so for whatever reason my path seems to have um very much taken on board the experience of being a parent both in terms of the way that it forces you to give up so much selfish thinking you just have to you put another in front of you time and time again, especially when they're very little. Even though you're exhausted and sleep deprived, you get up when they call or whatever, you know. It's a huge kind of spiritually embedded moments. We may not see them as such, but I think I really see them as such. Um, and so I think being a parent has just in, informed me a lot about the nature of spirituality and I do feel I do feel that the role of the parent could be seen through the lens of spirituality in a in a far more precious way than it often is seen to be honest I mean in, in practical ways it's just meant that I've had to be incredibly disciplined in terms of doing practice and um, limiting the amount of practical things that I do. So you'll rarely find me near an ironing board, uh, I would say. And um, 
So I've had to be clear about what I feel is important to do as a parent and what is not necessary and what is important to do about practice and in a way what is not necessary because if I'm going to do them both, I have to be quite clear about that. Given all the insights you've just explained from being a parent, mm. is a vow of celibacy mm. the best idea for someone dedicating themselves to, yes. to spirituality? For me, yes. Not for everyone, but for me, yes. Because the mind which is filled with desire for another can become very hot and cold, up and down, like you don't like you, um, you know, why haven't you done this for me, da, 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 da. Many of those sorts of thoughts can come which lead to a general um, confusion in the mind. I think from a personal perspective, though, what I would say is that from my situation now, what I think is really wonderful about two people being together is the support and the companionship and the sharing that comes from that. So although on the one hand, a significant relationship with another human can cause a lot of confusion and suffering, it does also offer the opportunity for something wonderfully human around companionship and support and trust. And from my perspective now, I feel I can see them far more clearly than I could before I was celibate. There's something about a human relationship which I can really appreciate now, which when I was able to have one, I couldn't really see very clearly. More good context. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should definitely appreciate what we've got. And I think one thing to say on that is that I sort of cringed when I used the word spirituality because for me, having grown up in a sort of you know very um, strict uh, religious household, um, mm. and I have seen the benefits of organised religion. I've had great friends from it. it provided me with a great moral compass growing up um but i think that as i've got older i think and i think maybe for a few for a few others things like the word spirituality scare them off because it feels like something that you you attain and that it's a long way away and that it's a continual you know goal to do that and it's very time consuming what i've come to realize for myself is that as i've got older you can't be you can't be anything but spiritual because it's innate in us and i feel like all i'm doing more and more now to go back to your point of sitting and listening mm. is i'm just opening the door a little bit more every day to allow that to come through it's not that i'm seeking something it's that i'm uncovering something that's already there um Spoken like a true Buddhist, if I may say. Well, I was going to say, is, is, is that, is that, <laughs> I'm over to our side. <laughs> well, it's an interesting point, isn't it? But do do you do, on that point? And I know you only said that as a sort of throwaway comment. Yeah. You don't. Could you have done this journey mm. without the without having the branding or the label of Buddhism? No, I couldn't have done it without my teachers in Bhutan how to know how to go forward. You need somebody to light the way. Until you're much more advanced, it's very hard to self-direct. You're right, it is there, but you can't see it clearly. And for people who want to start that process but can't go to Bhutan, mm. this starts with a personal practice that you were describing earlier. This starts from being able to do it from your own home, for being able to take time every day just to, to sit and to to open and to listen? There are many ways, put that forward. There's many ways and um, I think you'll know from your Hindu background that from the yoga tradition there are five paths, right? There's a, a meditative path, a devotional path, a karmic selfless action path, a hatha yoga path and a knowledge path. So some people will want to read books, some people will want to help others, some people will want to sit quietly. And there are many, many paths. I think it's worth exploring and allowing yourself to recognize that the way that your path unfolds, it will be just 
the way it unfolds, see what see what's coming up, see what see what comes easily, see what circumstances present themselves to you. But it's worth exploring those five paths and then looking at your life, seeing what feels most comfortable. If it's to read a book, find something from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. If it's to help others, then be a little more determined about that. If it's to be devotional, then have a shrine and do some offerings or, you know, whatever. If it's to sit quietly, do the reflective practice, meditation practice. If it's a hatha yoga, you can do some breathing practice and maybe do some, uh, some yoga. So all you need to do is to not judge yourself and wish to find a path. You brought it up, so I can't let you go without at least asking you that a final question. Mm. Your path from yoga to Buddhism. Mm. Because I believe from reading up that you were, that, that yoga came first for mm. you. Yeah. Well, took, mm, I don't know. But go yeah. on. <laughs> no, I think Buddhism was there right from the start. But yeah, yeah, the yoga, um, yoga and Buddhism, I don't, I don't really see them as very different, to be honest. Uh, the great yogis in Buddhism, they're called great yogis, like Milagrepa. The, the, when people are highly realized, we call them yogis, even in the Buddhist tradition, you would call them yogis in the yoga tradition. There are some philosophical debates we can have there, but let's, very generally, let's, mm. let's say that these two are so closely interlinked. Yoga is quite mainstream now. Um, you know, yoga mums, that kind of stuff. There's lots of mm. retail around yoga. There's every town has yoga practice. Mm. How can people get, I guess if they're interested in yoga and it's seen very much as a physical benefit with mm. obviously mental, um, you know, mm. you do meditate at the end, uh, Shavasana and you, there is yeah, a little bit of not meditation, but yeah, right. Sorry. Well, you have time where you are, yeah. you are inactive and you are not doing anything at all except lying, which may be the only time people do that at the end of mm. a yoga practice, but maybe it's not the reason people go. And sometimes that even gets skipped. If people want to learn more about the th theories of yoga that you just touched on the philosophy of yoga mm. and get the whole picture of what yoga can do for you, what should they do? What should they read? How should they approach that? Um, I, you know, difficult. I think that we must be careful here. People will have different motivations for going to a yoga class. Some people may be hanging on very difficult situation at home maybe struggling with many pressures. Some people may simply want to see what their body can do. Other people may like seeing other people in the class and get a sense of camaraderie from that. Other people may like to hear some Sanskrit terms for postures. We must be very kind in recognizing people come for different motivations. I think for each practitioner, it's just good if they're clear about what their motivation is, that they know it, they're not deluding themselves. And they recognize that over time, their motivation does potentially change and keep up with that. When you know your motivation has shifted, then uh, look around for what will feed you at that point. As long as you're clear about what your motivation is, don't judge it. It's okay. Fascinating. Thank you so much, Emma. Thank you for the unique insight. I've never done an interview like this. <laughs> <laughs> It's very personal, uh, but I hope people get yeah, something from it. And yeah, uh, I've, I've certainly learned a heck, of, a heck of a lot. I think you've raised a point that a lot of people come to, actually, to be honest. And you've also made me think, I'm pleased you've had those moments. But be kind with yourself, because we're all on a path and we're, you've assumed many conceptual frameworks in your lifetime. It sounds like you're just looking at one and you may need to let it go. Hi, Rowan here again. I just wanted to ask a simple favour. Now since I set out to do this podcast series, my ambition has always been to provide a new narrative, a different storyline that gives people permission to act on their own terms. A message that's perhaps counter to the accepted norms, accepted norms that maybe don't serve us. And I'm doing this because I believe, in fact I know, there are people 
who are unsatisfied with the way things work at the moment. What's expected of them, what's going on around them, what's going on in the world, what they need to do every day just to make a living and survive. Now I believe that everyone has the right to live and work from a place of purpose. And so I'm trying to get this message out to the benefit of as many people who need to hear it as possible. So I wanted to ask you, if you find these podcasts useful, whether you'd be willing to recommend self centered to just one other person that you think might benefit from listening this week. I'd really appreciate it. I hope they'll appreciate it. I hope you'll feel good for doing it. And I'd just like to thank you again for listening and supporting the series so far.